Uh, my name is Steve Rayner. I'm director of the Institute for Science, Innovation and Society, part of the James Martin 21st Century School, and it's my distinct pleasure this afternoon to uh, welcome you all here, uh, and particularly to introduce a very long-standing friend and colleague. I say long-standing because I'm getting sensitive about the word old uh, in conjunction with things like Freyman. Um Very long-standing colleague, uh, Professor Ken Richards. Uh, Ken is currently uh, visiting the 21st Century School here as uh, James Martin Visiting Fellow, uh, but uh, his day job is as Professor of um, Energy and Environmental Law and Policy uh, at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at the University of Indiana Bloomington. Sorry, Indiana University Bloomington. I always do this and get told off. Apparently they're very sensitive about that. Not as easy going as the University of Oxford, or is it Oxford University? I can never remember which. Uh, oh, Indiana University Bloomington. Uh, I've known Ken for, we were just uh, figuring that about 22 years. I first met Ken when I was a, um, a young research uh, fellow at the Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee, working in areas of energy policy, environmental policy, and just beginning to get interested in climate change. And I met Ken, who was at that time working for the Economic Research uh, Service of the US Department of Agriculture, uh, having already had a very interesting uh, background. He has undergraduate degrees in botany and engineering, and he has a double doctorate in uh, law and economics. And I think there's a couple of other things sandwiched in the middle somewhere, which uh, I, I, I don't remember offhand. Uh, and uh, he had also already spent a couple of years as the Chief Energy Advisor to the Cook Islands Government. Um, I don't know whether there were any Indians in the, as well as chiefs in the Energy Advisory process to the Cook Island Government, but, uh, uh, but there we are. Um, Ken's uh, um, has spent a good deal of time uh, advising in addition to his academic work advising the US government uh, and a number of other organizations on various aspects of climate change policy and energy policy, um, including recently some uh, work in the, uh, the stands. Uh, I forget which stand it was, but I'm sure uh, he'll be happy to tell you uh, afterwards if you ask him. Uh, today he's going to address uh, a, an emerging field, that of carbon capture and storage. Uh, and for some of us here in the James Martin 21st Century School, uh, we're particularly interested in the storage component of this because, of course, it's the same technology. Uh, that part of the component is the same technology you'd use for, as for air capture uh, and storage for doing climate change geoengineering, which is one of the, uh, the programs of the James Martin School, the Oxford Martin School. Uh, so today, Ken's going to talk about carbon capture and storage, uh, in this case from uh, waste streams from power plants, I guess. Uh, the intersection of technology, science, law, economics, and politics. Is there anything left out there? <laughs> don't think so. Anyway, without any further ado, it's a distinct uh, pleasure to introduce Ken Richards. Thanks, Steve. Um, I realize I have cords dangling from me here, so I'm going to take care of those uh, quickly. So what, ostensibly what I want to do is talk to you about carbon capture and storage. Uh, I think it's an interesting technology, at, uh, interesting technology uh, emerging, potentially important uh, in the news. There was an article uh, in the Guardian uh, over the weekend uh, that, uh, uh, that pertains to CCS. But also, what I want to do, I, I hope, is provoke a bit of uh, discussion uh, about how we do integrated policy analysis. That is, uh, analysis that, that that integrates technology. Uh, science with economics, law, and politics. And so what I'll be doing is illustrating one type of analysis that, that we've done uh, in, uh, in the US uh, on this topic and see if we can identify uh, sort of uh, some, some, of the, uh, some of the themes that might apply to, to the work at, uh, at the Oxford Martin School. So let's start with a, uh, with a definition uh, and characterization of uh, carbon capture and storage. What we're talking about here is uh, the, the extraction of CO2 from power plants or large industrial processes. Uh, then um, 
compress, uh, compressing it to a supercritical state, pumping it to a suitable geological storage uh, or a ge geological structure, and, uh, and injecting it deep underground. Uh, there are several types of geological structures into which we might inject, some uh, below ground, some below the ocean, uh, depleted oil and gas reservoirs to facilitate enhanced oil recovery. Uh, uh, the, the one that we'll be concentrating on today is deep saline structures, uh, but also into, uh, uh, into coal, bed, uh, coal bed structures uh, uh, and, and, and so on. We're talking about depths of greater than 800 meters. This one uh, suggests it at uh, 1,000. We're talking about depths of greater than 800 meters. Um, and uh, we're also not talking about pumping into great cavernous spaces, but rather into pore space. And so if you think of a bucket of, uh, a bucket of sand, you think about pouring water into the bucket of sand, the water disappears into the pore space. This is a similar, uh, similar sort of an idea. And then what happens is that the, um, uh, the, the injected supercritical CO2, because it's buoyant, and if we're injecting into a saline aquifer, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's buoyant in the saline aquifer, it rises until it hits an impermeable surface, at which point it spreads out. Uh, if it were a perfectly homogeneous uh, geological formation, that is if it was simply, uh, simply all the same material, then we'd get this very even spread uh, forming, a, uh, forming essentially a, a disk. And at the top we see the CO2 rising until it hits a, a, a single impermeable surface. Here's an illustration that these are both, um, uh, both models of the process. Here we see uh, injection uh, at various levels hitting various impermeable surfaces. That's multi-layered uh, injection. Uh, one of the things to notice is the size uh, of this disk. Here we have a, a disk that has a, a radius of about uh, about a thousand meters. This would correspond to 30 years of a million tons of CO2 per year. So it spreads over quite a large uh, quite a large area. Um, now, in the, uh, I'm sorry, most of the places where we would inject this are not homogenous. We don't get that nice disk. What we get is a, a kind of a riverine flow of CO2 as it, as it rises, it moves, uh, it, it moves along the surface. If we have a slope, it moves up the surface. But it doesn't, it doesn't form these nice, even disks, but rather more of an irregular uh, shape. And this is a, another model of, you know, in a particular location, how they would expect the CO2 to, to, to flow. Um, why are we interested in this? Well, first of all, because it's a lot of potential. This, is, uh, th this suggests different locations of potential fields in the US. Uh, again, the one that we're mostly interested in are the deep saline formations. And I'm from Indiana, and that's right here. Notice that we have a lot of potential injection opportunities in, in, uh, in Indiana. We also produce a lot of coal. 95% of our electricity is, is, uh, uh, is produced from coal. And so there's a great deal of interest in this. Uh, uh, in, in this technology, can we make this work, uh, and uh, and so on. Now, one other thing about uh, Indiana uh, is that, of course, we do have oil and gas resources. Uh, we do have mineral resources, and we have to pay attention to how might this interact with those. So, I have this technical drawing uh, to uh, to give you an idea of what the subsurface in Indiana might look like. The real point being, of course, that None of these, uh, none of these activities run below a thousand meters. So if we if we recognize that, it's in, it's it's important that as we develop policy for carbon captured storage, we're cognizant of other uses of the uh, uh, of the subsurface uh, uh, subsurface structures. So that's just a very quick caricature 
of the, of the uh, policy and science. Not detailed, we could spend an entire term talking about uh, the re real detail of this, but it does suggest some of the complexities that we're going to run into when we implement this, uh, this technology or when we um, start using this technology. Now, th the next question that we might ask is, well, what about the economics? And so we did, um, uh, we were commissioned to do an economic analysis of carbon capture and storage using typical, uh, typical technologies in Indiana. And what we, what we demonstrated were two or three things. First of all, the, the most, perhaps the most important uh, factor besides the, uh, the price of carbon in determining the least cost technology is natural gas price. It determines what's the default technology in the absence of the carbon price. And, and then uh, it determines how quickly we run into, um, run into economic use of carbon capture and storage uh, uh, as, the, as the price of carbon uh, rises. So at, at um, 2007 prices for, for natural gas, what we see is that as the price of carbon rises, we would pass from a pulverized coal technology without CCS to a natural gas combined cycle technology without CCS to IGCC, integrated gas combined cycle, which is a very sophisticated uh, method of uh, rendering syngas from coal with CCS. This is the technology that prevails in Indiana right now. Uh, now, these prices are for, are for carbon, uh, and so uh, at, a, at a carbon price of about $120 per ton, we would see a transition from least cost technology being the prevailing current technology to this much, uh, much more advanced technology with CCS. Just to, just to make sure we're all on the same page, $120 per ton of carbon would be about equivalent to $35 per ton of CO2. Now, the, the Stern report has suggested that we could justify making reductions in emissions all the way up to $85 per ton of CO2. And so, uh, this technology potentially has a very broad application. So when we combine, when we combine the, the cost range for the technology with the uh, uh, substantial uh, opportunities for deployment, that is the substantial amount of, uh, uh, of carbon that could be sequestered, say, well, this has a, a, a pretty interesting uh, uh, potential. What's more, if you also consider the possibility that the technology, the, I, um, the IGCC technology could be used not just for coal, but for biomass, then we have a technology that can have a negative carbon footprint. And it's, it's at, a, at a carbon price slightly higher than the point where IGCC with CCS is, uh, is economic. Fairly quickly as the price of carbon rises, biomass becomes a, 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 an economic uh, option. And here we have uh, both coal and biomass, a region of costs of carbon prices where both coal and biomass are, are mixed, and then just pure biomass. So it's a technology with a lot of promise, but it also raises a, a, number, of it, of, um, uh, a number of issues. So here are some of the issues that as we think about deploying this technology, we have to address. First of all, the pore space, 800, 1,000 meters down, 1,500 meters down, who owns that? Uh, how do you, if you're going to ask electric utility companies to develop this technology, expend $3 billion per plant, how do, you, how do you protect that technology or that investment from potential trespass suits? What could a state legislature that wants to encourage an electric utility to deploy the technology, what could that state legislature do to assure them that their, that their investment will be safe? And have we ever faced a, a, a technology like this, or I'm sorry, have we ever faced a problem like this before? You're going to explain trespass suit. Uh, trespass, okay, so, so the, tech, the, the, the theory is if we inject the CO2 
that we would be then having, remember that it spreads, and it spreads rather irregularly, if it flows under people's land, and if they own the surface estate and the mineral estate and all pore space, then the company, uh, the company could be liable in trespass for this physical invasion. Uh, so in answering this question, who owns the pore space becomes very, uh, very critical. And, and it also raises a question, who should own the pore space? So what this has done is it's given rise to a cottage industry among lawyers that I call carbon capture and storage is like. It's a game they play in which they try to look across, uh, across other applications and, and say, well, we can just apply the law from this area or that area, and that will guide us in terms of how we should deal with this situation. Well, the, the, uh, the, the game, though, it played like that is incomplete. It has to be played as it's like this, but not exactly because. And as we go through this, you'll see, you'll see what I mean. So what we did then was to develop a matrix that said, well, what are all of the different applications of lawyers of analogize? Don't worry about trying to read the detail. I'll give you a magnifying glass uh, in just a moment. But the, but the idea is, what are all the analogs that the lawyers have suggested might provide guidance? What are the tools the government have used in those settings? And then, does that really apply to carbon capture storage? So for example, in tertiary oil extraction, that is, when, when we go in and we extract oil, there's an initial extraction, and then, and then uh, the, the natural pressure is, um, is depleted, and then um, uh, there's a, a secondary extraction, which quickly gives way to, to this pressurized tertiary oil extraction. And it requires cooperation among owners in an oil field. Uh, so that's one analog where we, we have a situation where we say, well, CCS is kind of like oil extraction. It's also kind of like natural gas storage, where uh, one of the things that you might not realize is that oftentimes uh, we extract natural gas from the ground only to move it to a new location and re-inject it until we really need it. And it's generally re-injected near urban areas until, uh, until the winter months set in and the demand for heating rises. It, at least in the US, this is the case. We have large natural gas storage fields of re-injected natural gas. So it's kind of like that. We're re-injecting a gas. My favorite is it's kind of like flying an airplane. That is, if you fly an airplane over my land, you're doing sort of the opposite of injecting CO2 under my land. And so the analogy is, it's like flying an airplane. So what are the key concepts that, that some of these different applications uh, bring up? Well, the, the oil extraction was addressed through forced unitization, where the legislature said, we are going to require owners of oil fields to, to cooperate with each other so as not to waste the oil that could be recoverable. With natural gas storage field um, aggregation, the, the, uh, the state legislatures have empowered gas companies to go out and force the landowners to, to sell or lease the, uh, the, the rights to the storage space, the natural gas storage space beneath, uh, beneath, their, uh, beneath their property. Um, uh, under the public trust doctrine, owners of, uh, of uh, water, of groundwater, or owners of uh, land over groundwater, have limited rights with respect to that groundwater. And in fact, the groundwater is, is often controlled under what's called a public trust doctrine. Uh, for the flight, I, I wouldn't presume to try to come to Oxford and uh, and provide a, a Latin lesson. But uh, there's this doctrine that emerged from, uh, uh, actually from English common law, that when translated, it says, he who owns the land owns, uh, owns to the heavens and to the depths. This is known as the heaven and, the heaven and hell rule. Uh, but the Supreme Court, when this, when this was challenged, when a, a landowner tried to claim 
you can't fly over my land. I own to the heavens. The Supreme Court said that may have been the doctrine, but it has no place in a modern world in the modern world. So that idea, here's the court saying, we have this new technology. We have a new conflict. Here's how we're going to resolve it. We're simply throwing this doctrine out. Now, we might say, well, okay, so these problems have been addressed. But each one of these applications can be distinguished from, the, from carbon capture storage. So for example, in natural gas storage, it's generally in fields that are already under contract, where the majority of the field is under contract for natural gas extraction. And so the holders of those contracts can quite easily say, we'll just aggregate all of these and turn it into a field. So it has a history of having been under contract already. What's more, carbon capture and storage is permanent, where natural gas storage is temporary. And it's over a much greater area possibly 10 to 50 times as great as any of the natural gas storage fields. So the magnitude of the, uh, of the problem is greater. Um, for groundwater extraction, CCS implicates very deep, low-value saline aquifers, whereas, whereas the public trust doctrine has only been applied to high-valued, near-surface uh, groundwater. So what do we get out of this? We go run through these analogies, what do we get out of all? First of all, there's no perfect legal analogies. Moreover, none of these analogies are from Indiana. I'm trying to advise the state legislature of Indiana. Property law is state law in, in the US. And so the states have to work with the property law they have. If Ohio makes a ruling in property law, the, oh, the Indiana courts might look at it and say, well, that's interesting that informs us, but it doesn't in any way bind us. It makes it much more difficult to predict what the courts are going to do. There have been, as with the, uh, as with the uh, airplane overflight application, there have been some Supreme Court decisions, and those do bind the state or rather the state courts. But they're very few and far between, and we don't have an adequate case law body to help us say, how would a court decide if we start injecting CO2 beneath all these, uh, all of these um, uh, uh, property owners' uh, areas, how would a state court decide on that? Would they find uh, a physical trespass? Um, but what we do get out of, out of looking at this history is that courts favor the efficient use of resources. They seek ways to develop, uh, uh, they, they seek mechanisms to allow resources to be used uh, efficiently. And they do that under the guise of a number of legal doctrines that they apply. So you might think of this as the court looks at a problem, says, we know what the efficient outcome is. Can we find a way to justify going in that direction based on existing legal doctrine? Um, and, and then it's the, it's the job of those arguing the case to provide them with that mechanism to, to make that argument. So the, 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 the analogies suggest tools and strategies that we can use, that we can apply to the CCS problem, but none of them are binding. All right. The other thing that, that, that looking at these different applications does is it says, you know, there's two different ways that problems get solved. One is that state legislatures step up and they say, we recognize that this is a problem. We're going to pass a law and, and we're going to try to, to, to come up with a more efficient system. The other is people just go ahead and do something and then the courts sort it out. So there are statutory laws, ex ante, that can be used. But we can't escape the fact that in the end, even if there's a, even if there's a state law passed, in the end, the courts are going to have to make a decision about whether, uh, whether uh, the state legislative action has been consistent with, uh, 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 with the Constitution and uh, existing case law. So that then says, the, the, the next step in, in the inquiry is, and so what can we do about this? We've got this poor space. We want to be able to use it. Uh, there's some question about the uh, uh, about the the ownership of this poor space. 
In the end, we need to find a way to bring that poor space ownership together. What can we do? And there's been four different approaches suggested. I'm going to just run through those quickly. The first one is the pure market approach. It says, you know, this is what markets are for. Markets move resources to their highest value of use. That's what the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics says. And, and uh, it says that the, the prices will get the, will get the resource to its highest value of use. The trouble is that the, the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics is based on the concept of a competitive economy. There are four conditions for a competitive economy. All four of them are violated in the case of CCS. Many buyers and sellers, no, every buyer is in a unique, I'm sorry, every seller is in a unique position and there's individual buyers trying to aggregate fields. Perfect information. We really don't have even adequate or good information in these settings, let alone perfect information. Uh, we, can't, uh, we can't create new poor space resources. They're fixed and they don't move. And, and, and each one has a unique geographic location. And, it, and, and so uh, every supplier is a necessary element uh, of, of the process. That is, every landowner has to be included. So the pure market approach doesn't, doesn't work. So what's the next thing? Well, maybe we can just go to the bargaining approach. In economics, we, we love the first fundamental theorem of wel welfare economics. But then we often go to Cosian bargaining. And we say, well, you know, there isn't really a robust market in this. But Cosian bargaining tells us that, that resources will move to their uh, efficient use as long as parties can bargain with zero transactions costs and perfect information. Well, we've already determined there isn't perfect information in this setting. And it's not zero transactions costs. The process of identifying uh, uh, who the landowners are and then bargaining with them and the problems of holdout uh, can, can make this a very complex, uh, very complex problem. So the bargaining approach, the pure Cosian bargaining approach doesn't look very promising. In fact, this raises a, a, a concept, uh, a relevant concept that, that um, uh, really does describe uh, the situation we're facing, which is, I'm, I'm guessing that most of you know the tragedy of the commons, the idea that if you have a resource that's owned in common by many, uh, many owners, none of them can exclude use by the others, then the resource will be degraded through overuse. This, the, the example is the common with many owners of sheep, and, the, and there's an optimal number of sheep to run on the commons, but everyone will run more than, uh, than optimal because they're not bearing the full cost. Well, the, the tragedy of the anti-commons says that if you, have, uh, if you have a common resource and everyone has the right to exclude others, they won't make, they'll make uh, suboptimal use of the resource. So an example, uh, to provide an example of this, why are, there, uh, why are there kiosks on the sidewalks in Moscow in front of empty storefronts? It's because the property rights ownership of the empty storefronts is so vague that people aren't willing to invest in those storefronts and instead they build kiosks on the sidewalks and the storefronts go unused. Similarly for uh, intellectual property rights. Uh, if you have uh, a new technology and it requires the aggregation of many patents to bring it to fruition, oftentimes those technologies become uh, uh, unfulfilled because the process of aggregating the property rights is too burdensome. Any one player in that process can become a holdout and stop the process. They can ask for more than their uh, uh, arguable share. Well, that's why we have eminent domain. Now, let me explain eminent domain because I'm not sure whether it directly transfers, uh, transfers to uh, the UK. But the, the, the concept of eminent domain is that the government can condemn property and force its sale for public use. So if the government is putting in a, is putting in a, uh, a highway 
and it needs to run through somebody's property, they'll go and say, you need to sell your property to us. If the individual says no, the government can condemn that property. But the eminent domain power comes with constraints on it. Uh, because, because obviously it could be abused, then uh, people are allowed to sue uh, to stop the exercise of the eminent domain. And if they do, then the whole process of acquiring the property can be tied up in court. This is a way of preventing, uh, preventing abuse of the, of, uh, of the power. So we could use eminent domain, and in fact, that's what, that's what we've done in the case of natural gas, storage field aggregation. Um, but is it really the right tool in this case, or is it really the right approach? It was developed to deal with government acquisition of valuable property, not poor space, a thousand meters below the surface, that arguably has no other value. Um, and, uh, and, and as I say, when, when uh, eminent domain uh, is the tool that, that's available, oftentimes people respond strategically by, by suing and trying to run up the costs of, 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 uh, of building the project. And so what you have then is this sort of a strategic behavior in the face of eminent domain. Um, that, well, um, I, I've, talked to, I've talked to folks in the electric power industry, and uh, one of them said he'd rather go in for a daily root canal than have to pursue an eminent domain proceeding against a landowner in the way of a transmission line. Um, okay, then there's the nuclear approach which is one in which we simply say, you know what, you, you don't have property rights in that poor space. You might have thought you did, but you don't, and we're going to declare that legislatively. Uh, so uh, after all, the, property, uh, the opportunity cost of the landowners is zero. You have no other use for this poor space. And, uh, and the, the um, deployment of CCS is, is for uh, protecting the public welfare. And in fact, this is probably the most efficient, uh, the most efficient approach. It's, it's the very opposite of what Wyoming did. Wyoming started by declaring everyone owns the poor space below their property. So they, in a sense, scattered the property rights to the wind. Clarified, everyone owns it. Now, the developers of CCS projects have to go and gather those together and incur all the costs. This would be the opposite approach. It would say, you don't own that course space. So it might be, it, it, it is likely to be efficient, but it, it raises the question, is it legal? Would the courts back it? Politically, it also might be a hard sell for a legislature to declare to its constituents or for any politician to participate in the process, which he declares his, his constituents don't own something they thought they might have. Uh, and then there's the question of could it interfere with the subsurface mineral estate, uh, which the, the surface, uh, uh, surface estate owners clearly do own unless they've uh, sold them. So um, let, me, let me ask some quirky questions before we proceed with, uh, proceed with this. First of all, if you found a, a, a pound on the sidewalk and you knew with certainty who it belonged to, would you expend 10 pounds returning it to its owner? No, a lot of you are shaking your heads no. When I asked uh, a state legislature about this in a briefing, I, I you know, asked similar, the American version of this, uh, she said, are you asking me as an individual or a public employee? So because we do, in fact, do this all the time as public employees, we engage in these situations where we'll spend a dollar to return a dime. Um, second question, if I take, or if you take, I, I want to be careful how I frame this because I don't want to hurt as an offer. If you take a, a pound out of your pocket and you put it in my pocket, so I've now gained a pound, is society wealthier? Yeah, obviously not. We call that a transfer. It's just a wealth transfer, but it doesn't make society wealthier. If you've never used something, 
never counted on using it, and can't really use it for any constructive purpose, can you own it? Okay, these are just some, some quirky questions, but they set us up for the next, the next part of our discussion. Here are some more practical questions. If natural gas storage field developers pay $50 per acre for natural gas storage easements, permanent easements, and these are high-quality structures. They're dome-shaped. Uh, that is, the, 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 the rock structure is dome-shaped. It's about, they, they, they run from uh, 150 to, to, to uh, 700 meters below the surface, so they're relatively close to the surface. And they pay $50 per acre for natural gas storage easements. What would you pay for rather poorly developed structures, 1,000 meters below the surface? Would you pay $50? Would, would you expect to pay $50 per uh, acre or something less? What's going to be the developer's cost per ton of acquiring property rights if we require them to do that? Uh, and will that make the costs of CCS just skyrocket? And I've, I've had colleagues who said, if you force us to aggregate property rights, if we have to pay landowners, that's going to make the technology just un infeasible. It simply won't, will never actually deploy it because it will raise the cost so much. How much of the developer's cost is, a tr uh, is transfer payment to the owner? That is, if we require the aggregation of property rights, how much of, that will, how much of the cost of doing that is going to be payment from the developer to the landowner? And then how much of it is just the cost of figuring out who to pay and setting up the system? Well, what I did was to speak to a friend of mine, a colleague, who's a, a landman. Land, landmen go around uh, developing natural gas storage fields. So they're in the business of actually negotiating these contracts and, and pulling together large, large natural gas storage fields. Again, about the t a tenth of the size of what we might expect for CCS, but, but, um, but large fields. And I, and I asked him a series of questions about what was involved in this process. How many hours did they spend? Uh, how much did they pay per acre? That's where the $50 per acre figure comes from. Um, how much were the people paid and so on. And he provided me with some estimates that I could then use for back-of-the-envelope calculation. And, and what, I, what I did then was to say, well, suppose you have a plant size. I picked 632 because that's the size of the plant that's just been approved for construction in Indiana, integrated gas combined cycle plant. And in the process, uh, Duke Energy, the, the developer, was told that they had to explore the potential uh, inclusion of carbon capture and storage. So that's why 632. It will produce 4.5 million tons of carbon per year. If we had so you know so on through the through the uh, uh, various um, uh, various assumptions, these figures were provided by uh, uh, engineers and uh, geologists in the field. When I asked uh, when I asked my friend in, in uh, the natural gas um, uh, business. So what's your average uh, size of a, a contract? He said, oh, about 100. Uh, somebody else suggested in Indiana that might be 125, but it all depends on where the natural gas, or where the uh, carbon field is placed. Um, the, the, I, I, was, uh, I calculated, based on the information given to me, that the transaction cost of uh, developing a, uh, a contract with a landowner is about $3,100. So from this, what we, what we get is the bottom line is this would, this would uh, add about six cents per ton of carbon dioxide to, to, the, to the cost of CCS. Now remember, I said the figure was somewhere in the range of, that, that we counted, the figure was somewhere in the range of $35 to $40. That's a highly uncertain figure. In other words, this is noise. This, this doesn't even show up as a significant figure in that calculation. But what's also interesting is for that six uh, uh, to, to, um, uh, to, to move the money 
from the developer to the landowner, you would expend 50 cents in transactions cost for every dollar that changed hands. And remember, the, the, the changing of hands, the dollar moving from one pocket to another doesn't really benefit society. And it doesn't change decisions regarding the use of the resource because the resource has no other use. So we would pay 50 cents just to move a dollar under this set of assumptions. Now notice, notice the payment per acre is the same as for natural gas, but should it be that high? Should it be $50 per acre for something that's of much, much lower quality and, and, and uh, value? And then what about this figure, acres per, acres per landowner? Well, what we did then is to, to rerun this. Where we said, well, what if the landowners, the average land holding is only 10 acres? The cost, the transaction cost per dollar move goes up to $6.20. So we pay $6.20 in transactions costs for every dollar that we move from one pocket to another. If we then say, yeah, but the payments shouldn't be as high, they should only be $10 per acre, that figure goes up to $31. So we're going to pay $31 just to move a dollar from one pocket to another. This, this is a patently absurd result, uh, or, or at least a patently absurd um, uh, policy. So what we, what we see is even though the costs of making these payments, of aggregating these properties, wouldn't kill the technology, it's still a bad idea because it's, it, it, the, the, it's a socially wasteful use of resources to spend all this money on transactions just to move one dollar from a, a one pocket to another. So what do we get out of this? Well, aggregating the property rights may not be as costly as people thought but it's still inefficient because of the transactions costs involved. So the, the real concern about property rights then is also, it's not just that it's inefficient to pay, uh, to, to expend all these resources just to move money from one pocket to another. It's that you open your, you also, by recognizing these property rights, you open yourself up to this strategic behavior of people saying, you're gonna have to pay me a lot extra because I know I'm the last landowner to be signed up, and I'm going to hold out for a super payment, and, and, and I'll hold you up in court, and that's, that's been a consistent problem with public development uh, projects. Well, what this suggests is we need to revise proposals three and four, or approaches three and four. So here's, uh, here's proposal three revisited. Go ahead and use eminent domain, but include in it something called a quick take provision. The quick take provision says, if the land is condemned, the, the organization that's been authorized to condemn it takes the land immediately. The, the landowner can sue in court, but the only issue is over how much will be paid, not over whether the condemnation will go forward. In other words, it, it, it becomes a damages suit rather than an injunction suit. And what that, what that means is that no one has that strategic option of, uh, of holding up the entire project and extracting uh, disproportionate payments. Uh, and, and in fact, the quick take is included in most state uh, uh, statutes that allow natural gas companies to exercise the eminent domain. And again, it, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Because the stakes are so low. You're not taking somebody's home you're taking space beneath their home. And in the case of carbon capture and storage, it would be even less because you're, you don't even have the potential that you're going to be interfering with mineral rights. The nuclear option, the no property rights legislation approach, go ahead and, and declare that the poor space doesn't belong to the surface estate owners. But if politically feasible, put that into the state constitution. In fact, there are provisions in uh, both Hawaii and Pennsylvania state constitutions that would suggest exactly this result. They're not explicit because, of course, when, the, when they were written, there was no thought of engaging in CCS. But the fact of the matter is, even changing a state constitution can be a, a, a laborious and painful process. So in any case, 
develop legislation that will give courts the legal cover to find in favor of the carbon capture and storage process. In other words, if you're writing the CCS legislation saying this is how we're going to go forward, think about what the courts are going to have to decide when the legislation is inevitably challenged and prepare for that. So how do you do that? I'm not going to go into detail on this, but there are, there are several doctrines in US law and, and actually uh, uh, inherited from, from English common law um, that basically put limits on uh, private property rights. And they do this in a, in a, uh, in a uh, range of uh, uh, a range of applications. In short, some of them uh, deny ownership in certain types or elements of the property. They just say, you don't own that. So for example, the bed under the, the, the land under a river is, is, is common property and it's held in public trust by the government on behalf of the people. Others recognize long-established limitations on property, such as servitude. Others impose new limitations on ownership, that is, police powers, the power to regulate for public, uh, public health and welfare. But all of these doctrines seek to improve efficient use of resources. So what we need, then, is to write legislation that's going to invoke these doctrines, allow the, allow the court to use these doctrines to find in favor of the efficient use of resources. So what I did was very, very briefly, I, I wrote up an outline that uh, uh, was suggested to the state legislature. Uh, elements, key elements are here. Property owner, the, the, this, the, this legislation then would declare property owners do not own to the depths. Poor space below 1,000 meters is common property. Poor space below 1,000 meters is held in public trust. Saline aquifers are held in public trust, and so on. Through the poor space below 1,000 meters is subject to public servitude. Just being very explicit that we are invoking these doctrines so that the court has no doubt about what's, what's um, uh, intended and can use that in its arguments to find in favor of efficient use of the resources. Uh, then then as the, the next ones are essentially saying, we recognize CCS as an important, uh, as an important process uh, for protecting the health, safety, and well-being. Um, power generators also provide important public service, which is well-established law. Power generators are authorized to inject CO2. So that's the, that's the key point. Everything else is setting up to get to that, to get to that point. Um, and uh, however, they may not inject anywhere that it's going to go above a thousand meters, where the CO2 will rise above a thousand meters. Why? Because we're trying to clarify the separation of the mineral estate from this poor space estate. Um, okay. So what I've suggested then is this: a, this sort of a, a revised uh, uh, proposal, something between three and three and four. And the reason is because although that would probably cover us legally, we still have the political issue, which is, will the state legislature pass something where they're saying, you don't have property rights, you thought you did? They'd basically be saying, you were mistaken. You don't own that. Well, here what you do is, is rather, than, um, uh, rather than simply saying, you get nothing, an alternative approach would be to, to develop something like a proximity payment, where you say, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to inject in this poor space. We're not going to allow claims against the government in court, but we will make a payment to you. If, uh, and the way we're going to do that, or the way the developer will do that, is the developer will publish a map of the expected flow of CO2 over the next n years, let's say the next 20 years, how far will the CO2 expand over, over 20 years uh, after first injection? Now, if that's running under your land and you can prove ownership of land over this, uh, over this CO2 plume, 
we will pay you, let's say, $10, $20 per acre. What this would do then is uh, to, um, uh, uh, on the one hand, it would provide some compensation to landowners, reduce political resistance. But people who own one, two, three acres probably wouldn't bother. And it shifts the transactions costs largely over to the landowners. It makes it an administrative matter rather than a negotiated matter with each of the landowners. And, and, and thereby would, would substantially reduce the transactions costs. So that's, that's, where, we, that's where we've gotten on this, on this process. And what I, what I want to suggest to you is that to get to that point, we had, to, we had to weave together a number of different elements. So in this process, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't say this, I intended to at the beginning. My co-authors in this work are uh, a, a geologist, uh, a lawyer who's getting her PhD in public policy, and somebody who's getting a degree in environmental science and public policy. So we're dealing with a very integrated team, and we've called on a number of other disciplines. But in the process, we've, we've had to integrate uh, science and technology, not in great detail, but at least an appreciation of the important facets of, of the technology, with an understanding of the economics, uh, the economics and the finance, and the law, and then with consideration for the politics in which it's taking place. Uh, and I, I can say that, that Lots of folks have attacked this problem from one, one of those fields. And I'm, I'm quite confident in saying that, that we've moved the ball along substantially by going after it from, many, you know, from, from several uh, directions at once. So with that, uh, I'll ask if uh, there's any uh, discussion. <laughs>